Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. All right. Let's get, no. Let's get back to Acts. All right, now we're talking about systematic theology, the pluses and cons of that. And the only reason we want to talk about that is that as you approach the book of Acts, you're going to drag in with it all your preconceptions, all that stuff that you've heard through the years. Um, you're going to bring it along with you. And one of the challenges that you have as a student is to understand that you have it. It's okay to have those. But realize you have them, and when you look at a passage, don't try to mash it to fit your preconceptions. Don't try to make it fit in to what you've already come up with, at least in your mind, about your theology. Rather, possibly look at alternatives. Um, And maybe you come to the same conclusion, maybe you don't. All right? Um, Now, when when you look at systematic theologies, where I wanted to head with this, is that there's two major, when, when you look at God's unfolding in history, unfolding work in history, there are two major, what I would call, orthodox views of that, how God has worked through history. One of those viewpoints, one of those systems is called dispensationalism. Anybody here ever hear that word? All right. Anybody not hear that word? Okay. Huh? I don't know what it means. Uh, yeah, we'll work. We'll work. We'll explain it here. Um, one of those is called dispensationalism. Um, the other viewpoint, the other major system, is called covenantalism. It's also maybe called covenant theology, or it's called reformed theology. All right. So there, there's really two brands. You've got dispensationalism, and you've got covenant or reformed theology. And by the way, all these notes are out on the internet. If you go to that site, you can download what I'm talking about. So you don't have to write it all down. It's it's out there. Okay. So what makes these systems distinct is how they view God's unfolding plan of redemption. All right. A dispensationalist will, will basically see that God's plan as worked out through a series of historical periods called dispensations, hence dispensationalism. In other words, what they would do is they say, well, when, when, when when we look at empirically, when we step back and we, we read our Bible, and we, you know, we read our Bible 200 times and we start piecing it together, we see that God, God sort of dealt with man sort of in, in, a, in a different way in the Garden of Eden than he did you know, with Noah, than he did with Abraham, than he did with Moses, than he did with the church. Uh, God has a, has a different way of, of mediating his rule, so to speak. And what they do is they, they take all that information and say, well, there's basically what it falls out to is there's sort of seven different time buckets progressive through history and how God has dealt with man. That's called dispensations. All right. So that's where dispensationalism comes from. And the basic tenet is God deals differently with man in each dispensation. So a dispensationalist would say that God dealt with Israel differently then God deals with the church today. All right. And there again, there are different brands of this. There's different gradations, different variations. Um, some dispensationalists will go so far as to say that, well, here's, let me throw this out. Those of you who have not had me or don't know the answers can answer it. 
How is an Israelite born again? If you're an Israelite, you lived in the time of Elijah, how was it that you were born again? How, how would you go to heaven? And where did you get that? Okay. Anybody else hear that? Does anybody else believe that, by the way? Old Testament. If you were a Jew in the Old Testament, how would you be saved? How would you be redeemed? Keeping the law. So you're getting all kinds of different answers here, right? Yeah, but we're, but 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 that's a common viewpoint, dispensational viewpoint that says, well, the Old Testament Jew he was saved by keeping the law. All right, by making the sacrifices. But then you have to say, okay, let's let's say that's a true statement. Let's say that the Old Testament person was redeemed. I don't want to use the word saved because saved is more of a New Testament concept. But how is an Old Testament person redeemed? Say, well, they were redeemed by, you know, making the sacrifices and keeping the law. Okay, what about Daniel? I know. We know that. But those who say it's by works... You have to say, well, what about Daniel? How many sacrifices did Daniel do in his life? So he wasn't redeemed then? All right, so redemption in the Old Testament can't be related to making sacrifices. Right? Because if not, what you got to do is you got to get rid of Daniel. All right, what about all the, 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 all the, the, the post-exilic prophets? Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They didn't do... Sacrifices, yet they're in heaven. All right. The, the only reason I'm saying that is because there are some from the dispensational viewpoint that make that difference. Now, why is that important when you look at the book of Acts? Well, the book of Acts is transition, right? It's the early church struggling with the Old Testament legal code, the concept of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. And how do you put those two things together? Are there two different ways of salvation? Do the Jews, do they have to keep the law? Do they not have to keep the law? I mean, that was the whole big argument in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. You know, they come back and say, well, you know, the, the Gentiles are, are part of the body of Christ. Well, what? now wait a minute. You know, they, they, are they circumcised? You know, are they keeping the law of Moses? And there's a debate on that. There's a struggle on well, how, how do we understand that? Okay, And that's why understanding the theological system has a bearing with how you're going to interpret the book of Acts. How you're going to understand it. Um, now, the covenant theology viewpoint, or reformed theology, doesn't see that. They see God's dealing with man falling under two covenants. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works is what you find in the garden. Don't eat this tree. And what did Adam do? He broke the covenant of works. All right. So therefore, what came into being? The covenant of grace. All right. So, and again, notice what you're starting to see here. Are there elements of truth in both systems? Yes, there is. All right. 
But what I'm saying is you can pretty much identify the, the systematic view of history as either dispensation or covenantal by how you understand the outworking of God's plan. Why is that important? Because Acts is a transitional book between Old Covenant, New Covenant. If you're a dispensationalist, it's between the covenant or the dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace. All right? And so you have to understand how that might color the way you interpret Acts. Dispensationalism, can you give me some extreme examples today? Yes. Because there are some that don't, that don't believe parts of the Bible apply. Yes. Yes, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But I'm going to answer that question. Um, Now, generally, how is dispensationalism characterized? um, Characterized? Well, each, according to a dispensationalist, each time period dispensation is characterized by a command of God, a test that man had to perform, man's subsequent failure followed by a judgment. All right. So let's take uh, the first dispensation. They call that innocence. What was the command of God? Don't eat the tree. What was the test? Don't eat. What was the failure? He ate. What was the judgment? Expulsion from the garden, the falling of the humanity into sin. Um, They talk about the dispensation of what they call conscience, which is the second one. What's the dispensation of conscience? Well, where was man's knowledge of God? In his conscience, in his inner sense of right and wrong, right? So what was the test? The test was to live up to God, to follow God. Did Cain do that? No, neither did his progeny. And what happened is, as you look as you look through that time, at the end, the Bible says man did that which was right in his own eyes. He failed. So what did God do? God judged the world via a flood. And then you have another period of time called human government. And what was God, what was man to do under that? He was to govern himself by the laws that God had put up. One of the laws being thou shalt not kill, but knowledge of God. What happened to there? Well, mankind forgot it. Lost it. And then you had the time of God's promise, law, grace, millennium. All right. So basically what they see is they see that. Now, is that helpful? Is it helpful to see that pattern? It's helpful. All right. But what is the danger? You fail to see the, the grander picture of God. And here's, here's really what, what your problem is. This, this is the problem. You have, your, you have the Bible here. And this is supposed to be your Bible, all right? I know it doesn't look that way. Here's your Bible, all right? And what you do is you, you read your Bible, you study it, and you come up with a systematic theology. In this case, dispensationalism. That helps you understand this. The problem is, is when when you take that and you feed it back on the Bible and you start to interpret the Bible in light of this. Am I making sense? 
It's one thing to derive this from the scripture and to help you understand how God's plan unfolds. But then when you take that neat system that you have there and use it to then go back and interpret scripture, you fall into circular theology, circular reasoning. Using the Bible to prove your system, but then the system in turn interprets your Bible. And if you do that bad enough, you wind up a Catholic or anything else, right? Because your system, because after a while, what's, what's the mo what's, what determines what the Bible says? Your system, not the Bible. All right. So you, you always have to bring yourself back to bag the system. What's the Bible say? And maybe my system will help me get a big picture and understand how the flow of God. But it certainly doesn't drive my understanding of Scripture. That's the danger. Okay. Yeah, hermeneutics. Yeah, and um, you know, again, there's two basic camps. There's the um, grammatical and historical, and there's the allegorical. The grammatical and historical says, I interpret the Bible in light of its historical, grammatical setting. I, I'm, I'm interested in the author, what we call authorial intent. Okay, Let's say you write me a letter. How do I know what that letter means? What's the basis for what that letter means? What is the me where, where does the meaning of that letter reside? in you because you wrote it so in that case the authorial intent if I want to interpret that letter I have to interpret in light of what did you mean by what you said okay the allegorical spiritual says it doesn't matter what you thought it's what do I think it says so authorial intent so the meaning of it does not come from the person rather it slides over to the interpreter okay in other words, you know, I, I, I write something down. I write some message down here, all right? And then I transmit that message to the listener, okay? In the grammatical historical model, the intent, the meaning of the text, the meaning of whatever is said lies here. That's where it should lie. What did Paul mean when he wrote that? That's what the meaning is, all right? But in postmodernism... You don't care what Paul said. The meaning does not lie with Paul. The meaning lies with how do I interpret that? All right. And what happens is when you do that, you don't care about what the author meant. All you care about is what does it mean to you? That's why I hate these Bible studies. You know, what, is the, what does the passage mean to you? I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what it means, right? I don't care what you think it means. I care what Paul meant it meant. Or what the Holy Spirit meant it meant, right? That's that's the meaning. The meaning of the text is the meaning, not what I think the meaning ought to be or what I want it to be. You know, uh, where this falls out is, I'll give you an example, the whole area of, of um, biblical feminism, you know, the, um, called egalitarianism, where in, inside the church there's no difference between men or women. You can have elders, women, pastors, and Hopefully I'm not stepping on anybody's feet here, but but you can have that. The problem the problem with that. Oh, I'm I didn't mean I'm not picking on you. Right, I'm not picking on anybody in here. The problem with that is what do you do when Paul says I for, you know I suffer not a woman to teach or usurp authority. You got to interpret that somehow, and you can't say well Paul was just a male chauvinist of the first century. 
you got to get what did Paul mean? What was his intent in saying it? That is the meaning. Not what do you want to say or, you know, Paul was just a victim of his time and that was the male mentality of that day. You got to go beyond that. You got to you got to get back into what did Paul mean? That's a little we're on a rabbit trail here. But that's important. And, and that's what we're going to do in Acts. How do you interpret Acts? Well, what did Luke mean when he wrote that? Not what do I want it to mean or what, what I like it to say. What did Luke mean? And there are rules that, and there are principles that you can apply to derive that. One of them is the grammatical, historical, cultural setting. Understand what was the culture like at that time? How would the hearers, when somebody said that, how would they interpret it? What did Paul mean by that? What did Luke mean by that? And there are rules that you can use to get to that. The, the, the allegorical, spiritual, says that the, the, the historical meaning is irrelevant. It's the story. And, um, an example of this might be um, the fall. You go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you read about the fall of man. Well, if you're a historical, grammatical, and literal interpreter, how are you going to interpret that? Well, there was a day in human history, we don't know what date it is, where a woman, Eve, picked a fruit from a tree and ate it, she gave it to her husband later that afternoon. He ate it. God showed up that evening. The human race was plunged into sin. They were expelled from the garden. That's how we would interpret it. Well, if somebody's from the allegorical spiritual saying, well, that doesn't mean it. You know, we don't know if there's a real Eve or a real Adam, but the, the story, the meaning is what's important. The, the fact that there's a, there was a literal figure of Adam or a little figure, literal figure of Eve or there's even a Garden of Eden is irrelevant to the meaning of the story, which is, you know, mankind's failure, whatever that is. All right. I am on a, I'm on a wrap, but that's the differences here. All right. But um, in those bibliology, you know, I'm beating a horse to death on that one or hermeneutics, but. It's how you interpret scripture. That's going to color how you read this book. It's going to determine where you land. I, I guess I'm having a little trouble with that one example you gave because um, I do What recall, one example? I do recall a pastor at one time saying that it's okay for women to be teachers and preachers now because it all had to do with customs. You've got to make, the point is, though, you've got to make the case for that. You've got to make the case for that. When, and the point is, you've got to take what, what Paul said in First Peter chapter 2 in light of what did he mean when he's writing this stuff down, all right? And you've got to be able to make the case that that was a cultural thing and not a universal are, are there are there certain things in the Bible that are cultural in context? Yes, Absolutely, head coverings. Pardon? They deal with the culture, but I mean, are, are there certain or principles or practices that are cultural in context? Sure, head coverings would be one of those. All right, you can make the case historically from an understanding of the history, the culture, why the head covering was an essential thing that Paul talked about. That's not applicable today. Now, there are some women there. We got one woman in our church. That when she's in church, she's got a little something on her head. You know, that's, you know, but are you in violation of scripture if you don't wear a head covering to your church? You know, well, if you take a strict literal reading of 1 Corinthians 11, yes, you are. 
But if you understand the cultural setting and what was being said, you understand that, no, that was a cultural thing for that time. Now, some make the case, well, that's the same way it is with women preachers. And, and I don't want to beat on that right now. You know, we'll talk about that later or something. But wherever you land, you got to make the case that, yes, what Paul is saying in First Timothy is cultural in context, not universal in context. you got to make the case for that. Some have. Except you have to make the case. Okay, if you take his didactic, you say it's, it's didactic. didactic, and Paul said, don't do it, don't have women lead. Then you have to make the case, or can you say it's a non-essential? Well, here's I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. There, don't we have to make distinction between the essentials of faith yes. and non-essential? Is that going to keep you out of heaven? No, it's not. So is that essential? Well, no, it's not. What is essential theology? It keeps you out of heaven, right? You mess up on the person and work of Christ, you don't go to heaven. You mess up on the blood atonement, you don't get to heaven. You know, um, some of these other things. Yeah, you go to heaven. They're, I mean, they're they're disputed. There, you can make the case. There are people that make the case for it. It's just wherever you land on that personally, you've got to be able to answer the questions. That's all I'm saying. That's all the challenges. It's the challenges to you and to me, the same way. And I don't want to pick on anything. I don't want anybody to feel like they're being picked on in here, wherever they come I from. I fall on that on either way. Okay, I'm I'm wide open on that. But you can read. Culturally, then, women were nothing. You know, there were a couple of them, uh, you know, that are very famous and all that. But actually, women, for the most part, were just nothing. They were there to bear children, and that was it. That may be one reason why he would say what he did. You know? But you got to make the case for that. you got you got to understand, right, well, this is why Paul said this. This is the understanding of the content, whatever. you just got to make the case for it is all. All right, and, and but but it goes back to interpreting scripture. You do it by following certain principles: literal, historical, cultural, understanding context, the geography, the setting, the historical period. That helps you understand what the scripture means, because that's what's going to drive you back to that authorial intent. What did the author intend to say? Not what do I think he ought to be saying, or what do I want him to say? All right. So we got a little rabbit trail there, but, you know, it's important because as we go through Acts, we're going to keep asking, what did Luke mean when he said that? When, when here's a good, you know, we're going to get to that in next week, if not soon, or next week or the week after. What did Peter mean when he quoted Joel in, in, in Acts 2? What did, what did he mean by that? How did he understand the use of that text? You know, um when he talks about this is what it's going to be like, what Joel the prophet wrote about. All right, how do you interpret that? You need to, you need to understand authorial intent. Or you're going to wind up with all kinds of different meanings to that to that text. So dispensationalism is, is okay as a system. It helps you because there are certain patterns that do fall out, but don't make them rigid. Um, just a couple more things I'll get to John's, to answer John's question. Um, Basically, dispensation was popularized mainly in the last half of the, the 19th and early 20th century by C.I. Schofield, J. Nelson Darby. Um, Dallas Theological Seminary is a bastion of dispensational theology. Charles Ryrie wrote a very large book, um, Dispensationalism Today. Um, so it, it's an entrenched 
accepted theology. The problem is sometimes they take that and they interpret scripture in light of that, not that in light of scripture. That's what you need to always bring yourself back to do. Um, one of the characteristics of dispensationalism is premillennialism. What does that mean? Christ comes before the millennium. Why is that important? Well, what are the disciples asking Jesus in Acts 1? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? I mean, that's their mentality, right? So you've got to be able to answer, well, how does Israel fit into the plan of God? And, and what, what, what do you do about all those promises God gave Israel about a kingdom and a land? What happened to those, right? Read the Minor Prophets. God says, I'm going to take you out of the land, but in the latter days I'm going to bring you back. Well, interpret that. What, do you, what does he mean by that? All right, now if you're a literal, grammatical um, interpreter, how are you going to interpret that? God says, I'm going to take you out of the land, but in the latter days I'm going to bring you back in. How would you interpret that? Israel's going back. The people that were taken out are the people going back. All right? But the covenant theology folks have a different answer for that. All right. But the point is, you interpret it literally by what it says. Um, and so dispensationalism has, is very premillennial. They believe in Christ coming before the millennium. Um, most all of them are rapturous. Now, there's an argument on whether the rapture is pre, post, mid, or ah. All right. And there are debates up and down. Ah means there's no rapture at all. Um, Christ just comes with, you know, I guess that'd be more the post-tribulational viewpoint. But you got pro, post, pre, mid, and partials in there. And then you've got the new spin, which is the pre-wrath, which is the three-quarter group. It comes three-quarters. Yeah, all these different viewpoints, but basically a dispensationalist is one of those. There, there's some catching out of the church prior to the millennium because in their theology, in their system, there's a difference between Israel and the church. They're not the same group. There's Israel, and then there's the church. And that goes to Romans. We're grafted in. The whole Romans 11 notion there. All right. So most dispensations believe in some form of rapture. Um, most of them hold to seven dispensations, although some argue for six, some for eight. Some of them toss the tribulation in as a separate dispensation. Um, but basically, there's seven of them. Um, in answering to John's question, there is that extreme form of dispensationalism called hyper-dispensationalism. I don't know if any of you ever ran into that. There's a few churches in the area that are sort of hyper-dispensationalists. Um, what is this extreme form? What they, they do is they rigidly divide Scripture into these, these time periods, and they basically say God's message to the people of that time is limited only to the people of that time. All right. So, for example, you know, you, you be you go to a hyper dispensationalist church and say, well, you know, Jesus said in the gospel, blah blah blah. Well, those don't apply to us. That applied to the Jews of that time. We don't even need to read the gospels because anything Christ said is totally irrelevant to us. He's not talking to us. He's talking to the Jews of the first century. So they don't even they don't even care whether the gospels are there or not. Um, I was listening to one guy who was preaching from Thessalonians. His, he had reduced the entire New Testament down to First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. You could literally 
Cut those three, those five books out of your Bible, take them to church every week at his church, and you wouldn't miss anything. Because the rest of the Bible is written to people that it doesn't apply to you. You don't need to read Revelation, that doesn't apply to you. Gospels don't apply to you. The Old Testament, that's all for the Israel. We don't even need to look at that. What makes those five books unique? They're written to the church. Because we are part of the church. We are part of the church. We are part of that. See, each dispensation is a rigid box. Basically what they do is they, they take each dispensation. They have seven rigid boxes. They take their Bible and they cut a book out and stick it into one box. And the other people, they don't even need to know what's in this other box. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. All you worry about is what's in your box. The rest of it is irrelevant. No, you don't need to. It's pretty easy, you know, to be a, you know, specialist there. You don't even, you know, you can cut out, you know, 95% of the Bible and not even read it. It doesn't matter to you. It doesn't apply to you. Yeah. I mean, it's only important in the sense that, you know, it's, it shows what God did. But as far as teaching us or guidance for living or, or instruction or anything, it's irrelevant. Christ, in fact, what they would do is they say Christ's message, the Sermon on the Mount, is an irrelevant Thing to even study. It doesn't even apply to you. You don't even need to look at it. Don't even need to interpret it. Yeah, you just just go to the just go to First Timothy, Titus, and First uh, Thessalonians. That's all you need to know. The rest of it's irrelevant. They say that um, I hear people say that we are a New Testament church, so we don't have to read the Old Testament. That's a that's an invalid statement. Is that, is that hyper? Um. No, that's technically not hyper dispensationalism. Um, now, now, you know, generally, is it true that the New Testament is more applicable to us than the old? Yes, but can you understand the new without the old? Can you understand the old without the new? No, so you need them both. All right, but if by that they mean I don't need to go back and study the Book of Leviticus to figure out how to do church next Sunday. That's a correct statement. You're not going to be killing animals on the altar, on the pulpit next Sunday and sacrificing them. All right? But you need to understand, what was that a picture of? Christ's sacrifice. So it's important to understand it as a picture, but as you know, a, a principle that you, you go out and do it? No. Well, basically, they were saying on the, on the basis of they're saying by grace only we are saying not by works of salvation I'm glad you brought that up. Oh, okay. I'm glad you brought that up because you actually, actually, you're three slides ahead of where I'm headed, but you're headed, are headed there. That's 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 a, that's not correct. Let me do this. Let me get through covenantalism. I'll come back to that. Don't let me forget. All right, covenant theology. How do they view history? Well, they view it as the unfolding of God's redemption of the elect. So they would say that Israel, who's God's elect in the Old Testament, at least for the bulk of it? Jews. Jews. Who's God's elect in the New Testament? The church. The church. All right. So in their system, it's irrelevant whether Jews ever exist as a nation or not. It is totally irrelevant whether Israel exists. And in fact, what they do is they say because Israel crucified their Messiah, God rescinded every promise he made to Israel, and now it applies to the church. 
So there is no literal future for Israel. There's no literal kingdom for Israel. There's no literal return to the land. Those were all conditional promises by God given to Israel. They violated the covenant. They're out. We're in. Forget the Jew. Now, the whole problem with that is you got Romans 11 that talks about, that teaches against that. You got all the minor prophets that teach against that. Quite honestly, you got most of the Bible that teaches against that. Because what did God promise Israel in the Old Testament? The land, right? Did they ever get the land? God lied then, right? God said, well, in their system, God said, you're going to get the land from this to this and from there to there. They never got it. So either God lied about it, right? Or they're going to get it sometime. Well, being a literal interpreter of Scripture, how would you assume it to work out? They're going to get it. They're going to get it. In fact, that is the one that makes the most sense with Scripture. But covenant theology sees only one group of people, all right, the elect. And God's unfolding of salvation is to the elect, all right? Um, it's basically characterized by amillennialism, although you have some smatterings of others in there. What's amillennialism? No future kingdom. So in the in the in the at least the chronology of the of the covenant theologian, what's the next event? Christ's second coming, final judgment, eternal state. No future for Israel. No rapture. No future for Israel. No future kingdom. No millennial reign. The thousand years, that's an indeterminate period of time. And we could go on about that. You know, yeah, there are seven trumpets, and you count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven bowls, yep. Seven vials, yep. Seven seals, yep. One thousand. Oh, that's indeterminate. That's just an indeterminate period of time. All right. Um, indeterminate. Yeah. Um, they see, and what this uh, covenant theologian says is the church replaced Israel. We have taken the place of Israel in, in, in the covenants of God. We are his people now. Israel will never again be a nation. He will never again be a people. All right? And, and if that nation is pushed into the sea the next day, it's irrelevant and part of God's plan. We are the people of God. Okay? So, why do I say that? Well, depending on where you land, how are you going to interpret the book of Acts? Right? Now, if you're a dispensationalist, how are you going to interpret it? You're going to see it as a transition from Israel to the church. It is a transition from the old covenant to the new. All right. But you're going to see it as a as just a, a transition. All right. If you're a dispensationalist, what do you see? I'm not just a covenant theologian. What do you see? A replacement. God had the Jews, they're gone, they're done with, they're irrelevant, they're out of the picture, their temple's destroyed, they're gone as a people, it's the church now. No more Jew. Who started Covenant Theology? Um, it, it came out of Augustinianism and became part of the Catholic Church. And when the Reformation came along, Martin Luther just picked that up and brought it in to um, Lutheranism, which then made its way into Presbyterianism, which then became... Cemented in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which then became the de facto viewpoint. I've heard a lot about covenantism, but it's talking about like the Arab tribes. Yeah, like there's like seven. I've heard the teaching of like seven different covenants. 
Well, there's covenants not to be confused with covenant theology. There's two different things. Two different. Th in fact, there's a slide on that in the presentation on the web. I never thought that was right. Right. There's the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Old covenant, the New covenant, the Palestinian covenant. Yeah, those are covenants, but that's not covenant theology. That's different. It's different. Okay. Thanks, because I do have that coming up here. It's not to be confused. Are there? Did God make a new covenant? Sure, He did. And we are part of that new covenant, right? And what's the characteristic of the new covenant? God writes the law on the heart. Okay? So, there are covenants, but that's not covenant theology. That's different. Okay? Hopefully I haven't confused you on that. There's a book of covenant theology that I read, um, but it, it, does, it breaks down the different covenants that you just said. Yeah, it, those, that's different than... Reformed theology, which is the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, all right, and is amillennial in nature, all right. Um, so let's end answering her question there, her, the issue that you brought up, the confusion, okay. Somebody says, how's a Jew saved in the Old Testament? And you said by works, by keeping the law, by the law, okay. The whole problem with that is what does the New Testament categorically say again and again and again? By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The New Testament says, New Testament says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Then it says, well, let's illustrate this. Well, how was Abraham justified? He believed God, right? Go read Romans chapter 4. How was Abraham justified? He was justified because he believed God. Why was David justified? Because he kept the law? Because he believed God. Rahab, how'd she get in? She believed God. She didn't know much about God, but what she did know, she knew that, I believe. All right? And here's the thing to understand. In every era of time, from Adam to the last person who is saved, how are you saved? By faith. Period. Now, what is the basis of salvation? What, what, what is the basis? On what basis does God save people? That's how. Grace. What is grace? You, you don't deserve it. It's nothing you earn. It's nothing you can pay for. Right? It's nothing you merit. It's just a gift of God. Right? And, and who decides whether you get grace or not? God does. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was not, say, not redeemed because he built a boat. He built a boat because he was redeemed. All right? It's always been by faith. How is Abel? How did Abel please God in Hebrews chapter 11? And why did he offer better sacrifice? He lucked out. He just guessed what God wanted. God told him what he wanted, right? God says, okay, bring an animal. And Abel says, okay, I'll do that. And he brought an animal. And Cain says, yeah, I'm too busy today. I'll bring some fruit and veggies and whatever. And God accepted Abel and didn't accept Cain. And it wasn't that, that, that you know, God says, oh, you guessed the wrong thing, you know. It had nothing to do with that. Cain knew what God wanted. 
implica- implied in, in, in that passage of scripture, Genesis 4, Cain knew what God wanted. He just didn't want to give it to him. And God says, I'm not going to accept it. You don't come to me on your terms. You come to me on my terms. That's my phone. You come to me on my terms, not your terms. If you offend me and you, you, you sin against me and use something evil against me, who determines how that relationship is restored? You? It's me, right? We've offended God. Who gets to determine how that relationship is restored? God does. Not you. All right? So in every era of time, you're saved on the basis. The basis of salvation is grace. The way that grace is appropriated personally is you believe God, right? And what do you believe? What is it that you believe? Well, whatever God told you, right? What did God tell Abraham? Well, for before that. Leave this country. What did Abraham do? He left. Did Abraham know about Jesus? No. Did he know about death on the cross, crucifixion, resurrection? He didn't know any of that. All he knew is what God told him, and he believed it. What did Noah know? God said, build a boat. Okay, fine, I'll build a boat. So that's why um, I read that scripture. Of, it said that God counted his faith as life. Yes. How was Abraham redeemed? He was redeemed because he believed what God told him. Abraham knew less about God than your average first grader in your Sunday school class. But he knew what God told him and he believed that, and that was counted to him for faith, whatever it was that God told him. He didn't understand the full redemptive story. He just knew what God told him and believed it. He was not saved by works. He was saved by believing God. The Jew in the Old Testament, how were they saved? By, by keeping the law? No. They were saved by believing what God told them. And on the basis of that belief, on the basis of their trust and faith in God, then they sacrificed. The sacrifices did not produce salvation. The salvation they had caused them to do the sacrifices. There's a lot of Jews that did sacrifices and kept the law, and they're not in heaven, are they? They're called Pharisees, right? So keeping the law does not save you. It never did. It never had. And one of the things that we're going to dig through as we go through Acts is to understand that that's one of the struggles. There was an aberrant view of, in Judaism that said, mainly by the Pharisees, I am saved, I am redeemed by keeping the law, by doing this and this and this and this and this. And that was never God's intent. God never had that as a plan. It was always by faith. They had misconstrued what God had said and created a system of their own, righteous. We're out of time. We'll, we'll talk about this more. And by the way, there's more notes on this. You go out here, you can pick them up. All right? So, <sighs> I'm all talked out. One of the one of the one of the Jewish beliefs was: Look, if we're just physically descended from Abraham, we're in, regardless of anything else. We're in heaven. The rest of you all are going to hell. And Paul says, it's not the seed, the physical seed, the spiritual seeds. Those who believe, like Abraham believed, that are in. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this day and for this time and for being here. And pray that you guide us in the rest of our classes that we may understand what your word says. In Christ's name, amen.
Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.